From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I remember, you know, being in culinary school, coming home at night and reading, you know, like huge cookbooks in my bed and just like trying to like imagine what these people's lives must be like and, you know, hear about their inspiration. And it was all kind of part of learning how to cook. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Stacy Adamondo. Now, Stacy is the author of Piatti, Plates and Platters for Sharing, Inspired by Italy. She's a graduate of Wake Forest University and the Institute of Culinary Education in New York City. Stacy has worked in the test kitchens and editorial departments at Savour, Every Day with Rachel Ray, and the Food Network. Most recently, she was the executive editor of Savour Magazine, a role that she left after our interview was recorded. In today's show, we're talking with Stacy about her approach to antipasti in her latest cookbook, Piatti, about including family recipes in her book, and about her work on other cookbooks, including the James Beard winning Nopalito. And of course, we're playing a game antipasti style. Plus, we've got two recipes from Piatti, the clams with broccoli rabe and crispy prosciutto in a tomato wine sauce, and a recipe for blackened summer squash with buttermilk cream sauce, rosemary, and chives. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Stacy Adamondo joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Stacy. How are you? I'm great. Thank, Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for joining us today. So we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, Piatti. But I want to start actually sort of earlier in your life, because as I was preparing for this interview, I noticed that you actually went to college uh, to study English mm-hmm. and have an English degree. And we're sort of interested in magazine writing, magazine editing was sort of your initial career path. Was food like a part of that? Or were you sort of interested in like the food aspect professionally? after you started working in magazines? Yeah, well, what was really cool about it, and like, I sort of hate when people answer questions like this, I have to say, because (laughs) it's like, whoops, you know, I just fell into this great thing. But what I love about the trajectory was that I didn't see it coming. I kind of came out of college, right, being like, okay, English degree, I sort of live near, you know, I grew up in Connecticut, sort of live near New York, maybe I should go to New York and get into magazines. And that was hard. Um, yeah. You know, I worked three unpaid internships, like at the same time. So I was coming in five days a week on like a commuter train um, to Manhattan, working magazine jobs and just loved it and started to really drink the Kool-Aid. And I was actually working over a number of like odd topics. Like I worked at sort of a edgy fashion magazine and a health magazine and then a magazine about sort of like budget living. Um, so it was, it was really diverse and it actually helped me kind of realize what I didn't necessarily want to do or write about. But the food part actually just sort of happened because I was working at this really wonderful health magazine. And, um, the staff was very small. And so we were really hands on and, you know, a couple food topics kind of came up. We had some little food columns and the rest of the staff just kind of wasn't up for it. Like they were like, all right, who's, whose turn is it? You know, who's going to write this? And I guess I just started volunteer thinking that, okay, I come from a big family and, you know, we're Italian American. We cook a lot. I'm used to a lot of different types of produce and, you know, relatively healthful eating. And it just kind of was a natural fit. So I was like, all right, I started to raise my hand for some things and say, like, I could write that or, Uh yeah, I'll taste test all those things for you guys. Or, um, you know, I started to kind of go down this rabbit hole and bring my boss all of these topics that were so fascinating to me that I think were just like the very, very beginning of the food 
boom. Right. So, you know, at one point I said to her, I was like, oh, I really like discovered this guy. His name is Michael Pollan. You know, I really want to <laughs> sure. interview him. So I, you know, I interviewed Michael Pollan when I was like 23 right. in my first magazine job. Um, so that, so the hits just kind of kept coming. I started to do more and more, uh, food writing. And then I kind of started to realize, okay, wait a second. Like I could do just this. And that's when I decided to not look back. And so then you also decided to go to culinary school sometime around then, maybe? Am yeah. I placing that right? And and you did that in addition to working full-time? Yes, I did. So I started a job. Um, I actually found out about this job on page six in the New York Post, which if you're okay. not from New York, page six is basically like this hideous gossip column, uh-huh. um, just legendarily hideous. Um, and, you know, it said something about this editor at Rachel Ray's magazine had left to go get, you know, some other job. And it was like this big gossip, like, wow, Rachel, someone, someone's left again, you know, and uh, it actually turned out that person left to go launch the Food Network magazine, which I'm sure you've all heard of. Yes. So it was this really like wonderful kismet kind of opening. And I was like, okay, wait a second. You know, I, I never even really knew Rachel Ray had a magazine. Um, it was much cooler than I thought it was, it would be just from hearing that phrase. I sort of opened it and was like, wow, like this is really innovative, colorful, uh-huh. like really approachable. And so I cold emailed the editor in chief at her magazine and I just said, you know, I'm super excited about food and I'm like doing all my due diligence to try and educate myself and read more and do more. And what do you say? And she actually ended up hiring me. So you've, authored or co-authored a, a number of cookbooks. We're here to talk about your latest Piatti, and we'll come back to some of the other ones you've worked on in a little bit, but let's start with the most recent. So Piatti translates, I think, literally in, in Italian to dishes, right? Yeah. And tell us sort of what the concept is and why you decided to focus on that part of Italian cuisine. It, it was a couple of things combined into one. So I'm Italian American. Um, you know, my dad actually grew up on Mulberry Street in the heart of Little Italy uh-huh. in the 40s. Um, my, my mom also, you know, her side was Italian and they grew up surrounded by grandparents and great grandparents. And, you know, all the aunts and uncles lived right next door and they had a sure. huge garden that they cooked from. And so we were really like rooted in that style of cooking, um, from an early age. So basically, you know, Italian, you know, is literally in my blood, but also just culinarily in my blood. And I, I started to travel to Italy as soon as I was able to kind of travel by myself. I took a good girlfriend with me who is Italian American mm-hmm. and we started trying to go, you know, once a year or every other year and explore a new region. And we just had a ball and we learned so much every time about how different the regions of Italy are. And just, you know, I, I wanted to really immerse myself in it as much as possible. But yeah. of and course, is this before you're going to culinary school and all of that? You're already yeah. traveling to Italy? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I always say like, well, other kids were going to Panama Beach or like Miami <laughs> on spring break. You know, my, my girlfriend and I were like, how about, you know, this remote town in Abruzzi or whatever. Sounds um, so much better. Yeah. No offense to anybody who loves Panama City. But. It was really good. <laughs> um, so I, I just totally fell in love with it. Um, and then basically, you know, like did that in my free time. I wanted to be really well-rounded as a food editor. So I was always studying different forms of cooking, all sorts of, you know, food from different backgrounds. And of course, my job as the editor-in-chief at Sever is like 100% that totally immersed all the time in learning new things and uh, experimenting with new ingredients. 
But again, I just kind of kept coming back and back to, I kind of just like had this nagging sensation of wanting to do something about my heritage and something Italian. So I would sort of collect little ideas as I traveled around. And uh, at one point I went to go meet my distant relatives. Um, You know, my grandfather had sort of put me in touch with some of our Calabrese relatives at like the tip of Italy's boot. And I went down there and, you know, had a crash course in Italian because none of them spoke English. And I knew it was going to be a lot of like navigating moments with them. Um, but, but mostly, you know, I was there to kind of like glean everything I could from their cooking. And when I got there, you know, the kind of the introduction to Piatti is the story about, you know, they said something like, okay, we're, we're going to cook you a little lunch, you know, and I, sure. in my Italian, I was sort of like, great, like, got it, lunch. I know that word. And so I sat down and just feasted on everything that they brought out. And there were these huge platters of things, eggplant, parmigiana, and, you know, white beans in this puddle of olive oil and, you know, sausages and bread and cheese and all kinds of crazy things. And so I was trying to please them and ate and ate and ate. Right. And then after that, lunch came out. And (laughs) I was like, oh my God, that was just the antipasti. And I sort of had this hilarious email back and forth with my mom going, which I dredged up a couple of years ago. And I was like, wow, you know, it really struck me at the time. Like I could have just been done after the antipasti. And then I started to think about some of my travels and I was like, wow, that's really true in a lot of regions of Italy. Like you start kind of feasting on these big abundant plates that people put out and then you kind of forget that you even need anything after that. Like the wine's flowing and you're dunking bread and like all the pools of olive oil that are left behind after the great sort of antipasti platters come out. And I thought, I love this as a book theme, but also as kind of just like a way of life. Like that's how my husband and I love to entertain when we're at home is just like put out these big platters, let people help themselves, um, make it really family style and approachable and warm. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen a book on this. And I think this is a thing. Yeah. And were you aware of that sort of perception that I think many people have of antipasti being appetizer only, which you're sort of, as you note, trying to break people of? Was that conscious as you were putting this book together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything from the recipes that I chose to put into the book, you know, you'll notice if you flip through it, I sort of skipped those very obvious classic things. Like, you know, people think of Italy and and antipasti, think of caprese salad. I mean, I say like arancini balls. And, Uh you know, it's like sort of the same old, same old crostini. Like, I don't think there's any crostini in the entire book. Because I just wanted to show how much more range that concept has. And largely in Italy, I think the things that they put out for antipasti have in common that they're simple. Um, You know, it's a first of many courses. You don't want to like spend tons of time working on it or tons of money working on it. Um, They're simple. They're affordable. They're usually like local, um, you know, seasonal. They're rustic. um, They're generous, you know, like there's stuff kind of spilling over the sides of the platters. And it's sort of just like a big, loving, you know, family style ordeal. None of it's precious. None of it's little tiny finger foods. And I thought, you know, in general, people need to know that because really they think of charcuterie boards or olives, but they don't think of, you know, seafood or even like a room temperature sliced meat or something um, coming out as antipasti. So that's largely what I focused on. Yeah, I mean, you even write that you think like the state of grazing in America is sort of stagnant, (laughs) right? Like people really are sort of set in that way of thinking. But yet at the same time, as I was looking through your book, some of these recipes, I think to some home cooks might not be viewed as antipasti. Like you have roasted pork loin, you have like eggplant parmesan, you have these things that I think people don't necessarily think of as a 
uh, grazing or snacking sort of dish, but you're positing that they should be and that they are. Yeah, I think why not? You know, I think anything that could kind of um, almost like, you know, either be just as good at room temperature or even sometimes get better at room temperature after it sits and kind of marinates in its own juices and olive oil and and herbs. um, I think it's fair game. And, you know, I definitely took some liberties. I mean, I say it like straight up in the, you know, subtitle of the book that it's Italian inspired because some of the stuff is pulled straight from experiences I had in Italy, dishes right. that I know are legendary in certain regions and my, you know, family heritage recipes. But other things are sort of like, I think, you know, knowing what I know about the style of antipasti platters and the way that these cooks in Italy put them out and cook them and conceptualize them. It's like, I think I could take a couple liberties and kind of create some of my own. Sure. I really wanted the book to be not just, you know, straight recipes pulled from Italy, because you can kind of find that, you know, anywhere. But I wanted this to be inspiring and, you know, kind of light up people's imaginations and 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 help them say, I want to cook something creative. People are coming over. I don't want to bore everyone. I want to make them feel taken care of. So what can I do? And first they can start with the recipes that they see right in the pages of Piatti. And then maybe afterwards they can just kind of like venture out and look at what's in the market and get excited and use some of the techniques to sort of riff on. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel like I'm having a party. I'm having people over. I need to sort of make a menu and go out and buy all these things. Yeah. Yeah, Impress them. (laughs) But One part that really struck me with your book is the way you emphasize pantry and sort of pulling things together from things that you've previously maybe pickled or canned and sort of it doesn't need to be like a go out and buy 50 ingredients in order to make a nice spread for people. Can you talk about that concept a little bit and how the idea of um, like you even have a a section called the antipasti pantry, uh, how that concept sort of plays into how you approach this type of cooking? Well, you know, we have a running joke in my household that my husband's always like, you cook the best stuff when there's nothing in the house. Like, <laughs> yeah. he'll stare at the refrigerator and sort of be like, I cannot come up with anything. We need to order takeout. And I'll come home and I'm like, give me a second here. So, <laughs> right. you know, I think what I what I tend to do and what I think maybe kind of, you know, this sort of like cucina povera, this like peasanty style food of, of old world Italy, um, they had to do a lot was just sort of look at what they had and use it in a way that's not like an accent or a small thing, but use it as the meal itself. So I think of something like, uh, you know, a tin of anchovies. And a lot of people might use that for flavoring a dish, but also that could be the dish, you know, if you have anchovies, kind of lay them out in like a little puddle of their own uh, preserving oil and then sprinkle maybe like some fresh herbs over the top or some pink peppercorns or, you know, a little bit of that sliced pecorino romano that you have in your fridge. All of a sudden that's a dish and you serve that with a piece of bread and you've got like a second thing to put out next to whatever else that you already planned. Sure. So it's little moments like that that I think make a table feel really full and make a spread feel really abundant. But it's also looking at foods that don't seem like they could be the star themselves. Um, you know, I make a, a sort of Southern Italian style Castelvetrano olive and celery salad. And a lot of people are like, celery? I don't know. It's not, it doesn't do it for me. But if you actually treat celery like the main star in a dish, I think it will surprise you. And I yeah. think that's one ingredient that kind of tends to wilt in people's crisper drawers. You always have it for some reason, but you like never right. have enough reasons to use it. Right. So if you actually just sort of, you know, thinly slice that and throw it on something for texture or, you know, have it be the basis of a salad, like, all of a sudden, I think your whole world opens up as to like what a salad means. So that was part of the pantry, you know, um, section in the book was saying, 
let's take the things that seem very ordinary and sort of turn them into something luxurious. And we actually have a section about sort of, you know, oil preserving vegetables in there. Um, you know, people think of pickling often, but it's not a huge thing in Italian culture in my experience. Um, what they do do a lot of is preserve things underneath, you know, a pool of olive oil. So mm -hmm. they'll lightly cook a vegetable like either an artichoke or, a, you know, I do it with cherry peppers, um, lots of things in a little bit of a, you know, quick brine. And then they sort of dry it off, put it in a jar and cover it with olive oil and throw it in the fridge. And that, you know, you'll have on hand, it lasts for at least a couple of months in the fridge. You'll have it on hand. So it's something that you can pull out, you know, in the off season when cherry peppers aren't in season anymore. You can't find baby artichokes. And all of a sudden it's like this really great treat that you've been like saving for a special occasion. So right. that always just ups the ante a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So you told us the story about um, your relatives in Italy serving you lunch and, and, <laughs> and eating a lot um, of the antipasti. And you're traveling to Italy. You're seeing some of these recipes being made by members of your family. How many of the recipes in the book sort of are family recipes that come from members of your um, family. And what was that process like of sort of taking those recipes, learning them, putting them into the pages of your book? Yeah, it was so special. Um, I mean, really, I'm the first person in my family to ever even physically write down most yeah. of the recipes, because it's the type of thing that you know, we learn just from standing around the kitchen a lot and saying like, grandma, what you doing? Or right. how much of this should I put in? Or, you know, having her kind of say, all right, like you're rolling those meatballs too big, make them smaller, you know, sure. so <laughs> like a real muscle memory kind of um, learning in our kitchen and to write them down for the first time was not only difficult because you're like, this isn't how we do it. We just add it till it seems right. But it was also a lot of pressure. You know, I wanted my parents to taste the recipes in the book and say, oh my gosh, this tastes exactly like, you know, my great grandma, my nanny or my grandma. Those moments are really special when, you know, I do see that look on my family's face that like, oh my God, you, you captured it. Somehow you right. wrote down the exact quantity of garlic that's supposed to go in these meatballs. Um, so I'd say probably maybe around 20% of the recipes are um, inspired by my family. A couple of them okay. I took some liberties with. Some of them are, you know, I can't even believe I shared them sometimes or that <laughs> my mom let me, but I guess, you know, we get a real kick out of it. Um, and just, you know, it warms our hearts to think of seeing my grandmother's and my great grandmother's recipes out in the world for other people to be cooking. Like they're not with us anymore, but I know that they would just get such a kick out of that. Like, yeah, you know, my grandma would just crack up and be like, people are cooking my food. So we, we took some of my grandma's recipes and ran with them. I, I sometimes added something for a little pop of color or, you know, a little extra sort of kick of acid or something like that. I, sure. I kind of wanted it to be really friendly to a very serious, knowledgeable cook's palate, um, even though yeah. they're very approachable. You have this veal recipe from, I believe it's your great grandmother. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, as you sort of alluded to in the head note to this recipe, maybe like a hesitation around sharing it. You sort yeah. of alluded to that a little bit just now. Was that a real thing? Did that really sort of, was that a family conversation? What impact did that have on deciding what recipes to put in the book and how did you sort of resolve that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very much a thing in my family and not in a negative way. We just, it's special, you know, and um, we love to cook for people. And there's something about teaching other people your secrets that makes it less special when you right. like pull out that dish. So there still are certain recipes like 
I don't think I will ever share the recipe for our family's linguine and clam sauce. Like, I don't think it's possible. I might take that one to the grave with me. We'll see. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Stacey Adamondo, author of Piatti. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Allison Roman and today's guest, Stacey Adamondo, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. And I love telling the stories behind cookbooks by sitting down with dozens of your and my favorite cookbook authors. Plus, Salt and Spine's publishing recipes, author excerpts, holding cookbook giveaways, and so much more. Now, if you love our show, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. You'll have access to lots of perks, like early access to Salt and Spine events, our bookmarks, t-shirts, cookbooks, and so much more. And you know, this podcast is really only possible because of listeners like you, and I can't thank you enough for listening and for your support. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash saltandspine. And now back to our conversation with Stacey Adamondo, author of Piatti, Plates and Platters for Sharing, Inspired by Italy. I think you also have mentioned that you turned to other Italian cookbooks, older Italian cookbooks, as you were putting this together. Is that true? Yeah, I, I sort of have this, you know, obsession with walking around old vintage bookstores in Italy and just, you know, basically gathering whatever I can from my limited but growing vocabulary. And a lot of times it'll just be something from looking at the title of a recipe and saying, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, that's interesting. I've never seen that dish, but that makes total sense that this ingredient is from this region or I've seen other dishes similar to this, but I've never seen it with, you know, that nut or that type of cheese or, um, you know, in that preparation exactly. So yeah, I definitely, it's hard to say, you know, I don't have certain books that I have on my shelf necessarily that I always pull inspiration from, but it's more, um, you know, a slow process of kind of jotting down little ideas as I traveled around and looked at menus and looked at cookbooks. And I mean, some of these things I'm assuming are sort of gone and not even really like in vogue anymore in the, in the regions that they're from. So, you know, it might even be the type of thing that a person from that region is not even necessarily familiar with an exact dish or preparation anymore, but you know, it still has that spirit of that place. And I think that is the stuff I want to hang on to. Yeah, that was one of the things that was so fascinating to me when I was in Italy is how regional everything is. It's unreal. It's crazy. People don't realize it. And I even, you know, sometimes feel like I hope I'm getting it right. You know, when I say that a dish is from a certain region or that, you know, a certain region only uses this chili pepper or this onion, I'm always a little bit hesitant to say that in any definitive way, because I'm sure either that those things have migrated from place to place, or somebody might see it a little bit differently than I do, who knows a region better than I do or not. So I try and keep an open mind about it, but also get as specific as possible so that I can sort of lead people like if you like this style of dish, maybe this region is for you. Right. Do you remember the first cookbook you ever had that felt like it was really yours? Oh my gosh, that is a fantastic question. I would need to think about that pretty hard. Um, Did cookbooks play a big role in your life when you were young? Did your family have not cookbooks? At all. Not no, really? I don't even think my there was a single cookbook in my household before like, you know, the Food Network years, probably. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think we all, you know, 
watched Food Network and at first the thought of like people cooking on TV and all these friendly ways just was sort of mind blowing for everyone. And it was, you know, on a lot in the background at my house and we all had our favorite cooks that we liked. And right. that was sort of something that my mom and I bonded over, like, you know, sitting around on a weekday morning, a uh, weekend morning. But yeah, I think that was the first time I can even think of a, of a cookbook entering our household. And even then, you know, they kind of just sat on the shelves in the pantry and right. and my mom didn't really call on them that much. So right. we mostly cooked dishes that came, you know, were passed down to us from my grandmother and beyond. Do you remember who your favorite Food Network star was? Are you willing to I divulge mean, that information? Everybody's <laughs> favorite Food Network star, Ina. Yeah, I would think <laughs> She's so. She's the best. She, she continues best. to be the best. Yes. She's also written a ton of cookbooks. Oh, gosh. Yeah. What sort of things do you look for in a good cookbook? In a, in a good new cookbook, I mm-hmm. think, um, I like to see people break the mold a little bit. Um, and it could be in really subtle ways. I mean, even in my own cookbook, I think there was a phase for, you know, maybe the last five or six years where cookbooks became really, really text heavy. Like yeah. everybody wanted to tell their entire life story in their cookbook, which I think was super admirable and really exciting. And for a while, people were just sitting and reading books. Like I remember, you know, it, being in culinary school, coming home at night and reading, you know, like, huge cookbooks in my bed and just like trying to like imagine what these people's lives must be like and, you know, hear about their inspiration. It was all kind of part of learning how to cook. But now with there's so much writing, you know, food writing out there, there's so many recipes to choose from. I think the culture is shifting a little bit to people just kind of wanting to get to the point and get the good food and see the beautiful image and hear, you know, in a paragraph or less, like what this dish means to you and what they should keep in mind while they're cooking it. Uh-huh. So I really cut out, you know, I did, I think something like a four page introduction in my cookbook and that's right. it. I mean, sometimes you see those pages that are like, how to use this book. And right. I get it. You know, it's kind of like when the waitress comes up to you at a restaurant and says like, just so you know, you know, here's how our menu works. The uh-huh. small plates are at the top and the large plates are at the bottom. It's like, I think we all know that by now. <laughs> so I, I tried to cut out a little bit of that. And I like to see people shake that up a little bit too. Um, I love to see a book that's organized in a distinct way, um, maybe by the regions of a place or the micro regions of a place that you wouldn't really know having not been there. Um, you know, I like to see a book from a culinary region that's lesser known, of course, at mm-hmm. Sever, like that's what we just geek out over. Right. Um, but something that really does a deep dive and helps you better understand a, a food culture and, and want to go to that place and want to cook those recipes, even though you've never heard of them or you're not familiar with them. That's like definitely kind of the, the kick I'm on right now with cookbooks. There was a conversation for a while about the longevity of cookbooks as like an industry, right? Are we going to have cookbooks anymore? Because yeah. now we have tablets and things. And there was that whole sort of, I don't know if I want to call it a scare, but conversation around that. Yeah. I think they have remained quite strong. It's crazy, actually. Yeah. yeah. What role do cookbooks play in our society today? Well, I like to think of them as collections, you know, like you can find if you want to cook some Vietnamese food, like you can find, you know, sort of a one off or maybe five or 10 Vietnamese recipes on every, you know, Epicurean site that you can go to nowadays. But if you really want to understand how they all fit together, that to me is what a cookbook is for. Mm -hmm. Um, This is where expertise comes in. You can't fake expertise in a cookbook. Well, I guess you can. 
that, but <laughs> it's hard. I look down upon it. It's yeah. Transparent too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, you can't cut corners because if you've done your research, it shows and you're able to fill up the pages of a book. And if you haven't, it's kind of a stretch to envision a book in the first place. So I think yeah. I'm hoping that more and more the books that get made are a little bit more authoritative and, you know, collectible and just will stick around for a while and have staying power as sort of evergreen classic content that can teach you about a larger culture and a larger style of cooking. Yeah. You wrote a short stack book on cherries and mm-hmm. I love short stack books for people who aren't familiar. They're, you know, small collections around a particular ingredient. How did you decide to approach cherries? Was that a, a thing that was asked of you or is that an ingredient that you're particularly <laughs> passionate about? Well, actually, originally, I really wanted to write the anchovy short stack. And I pitched that and, um, well, you know, they had approached me and said, would you like to write one? What Mm -hmm. what types of topics would you want to do? And I really wanted to do something Italian. Anchovies stood out to me and I sort of got like a, you know, back from them. They were like, well, is there anything kind of more seasonal you could do? A little summery, um, you know, and I, I thought of some Italian ingredients that reminded me of summer. Like at one point I sort of toyed with basil or, um, you know, certain like zucchini or something, but sure. it didn't feel like there was maybe enough to say about the various ways that you could use those foods. It's sort of like throw them in for seasoning, you know? Right. Um, so I ended up instead thinking about it from a nostalgia perspective. And when I was imagining summer foods that meant something to me, cherries just stood out as this sort of dreamy, um, you know, sitting in the back of my mom's old station wagon on the way home from the grocery store or the market, eating a bag of cherries, like one after the next. And they're so short lived, you know, their season is so short. Um, you, ha- you kind of have to like cherish them while you have them. And I think that makes them so special. And then I had never really eaten them or experimented with them a ton outside of just um, you know, eating them with their pits and stems. So right. I started to think, okay, how, you know, there's, there's some sort of unexplored territory here and I could make these a uh, real ingredient in a lot of dishes. So that was where the idea was born. And I had a ton of fun doing it because of course, then you get to explore all the different types of cherries that there are and right. you have to make them sweet and savory. And, um, I ended up actually using some inspiration from that book project in Piatti when I did a recipe for these sort of olive oil and vinegar roasted cherries in the yeah. book and serve that as an antipasti. And that the picture is amazing. It is amazing. Piatti. It I like love that picture. caught my eye immediately. Yeah. And cherries are one of my favorite fruits. So I'm like exactly. super excited to try that roasted cherry it's recipe. It's so cool. And I mean, I, I always say you can sort of serve them like olives where, you know, huh. put out a little yeah. like bowl for the pits and just let people kind of um, eat the flesh around the pit just like they would an olive. And it just feels so different, but it's like the easiest thing. And it's, yeah. you know, like 15 minutes in the oven and then you just seem like a genius at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> so you also co-authored a few cookbooks, including Around the Fire and Nopalito, which um, won a James Beard Award. How has your process sort of changed as you've written different cookbooks of different styles, sometimes books that are solely authored by you, sometimes you're working with a restaurateur or a restaurant group? How has that sort of impacted how you approach cookbooks? That's such a cool thing to think about. I I haven't really, you know, spent a lot of time like reflecting on that. Um, Well, first of all, you know, when you're co-authoring cookbooks, or at least when I've been co-authoring cookbooks, I feel that I have to sort of let the spirit move me. Um, The chef is really, you know, the voice of that book. And it's about bringing that chef's story 
out into the light. Um, sometimes it's about like casting a light uh, on special things about those people that they don't realize are super special, which is just a gift for anyone to do that to any of us. Sure. So it's really nice to be that person. And I am really selective about the people that I work with only because I like positivity and I like um, teamwork and I want to tell a story that feels worth all of our time. Um, there's so many books out there, you know, really wanted to focus on things that felt like they would really contribute something into the food culture that we have now. So I'm so lucky to say that the two chef books that I've worked on have totally been like that. Um, and it was just the icing on the cake to win the James Beard Award for Nopalito. I mean, that book just was a joy. I can't even, we actually wrote that book in about four months. Um, and we met every single week and, you know, I just remember walking into the kitchen at all the Nopalito locations and having, you know, Gonzalo, the chef sort of lift the pot lids and point to point out things to me and the aromas that were in the air and the beautiful like chilies that were roasting and the masa that was being made and, um, just being around a bunch of happy cooks who are just so glad to be doing what they're doing and uh, a restaurant that really celebrates that sort of pure, authentic flavor and doesn't take shortcuts. And um, I just, it was, it was a good, it was a great match and it was just so special to me to be able to put them on a pedestal that they deserved. Yeah. That's awesome. So we always end with a little game. Hmm. So I thought we'd play a little choose your own adventure antipasti game. (laughs) So there's uh, a few stacks of cards to your right that have, um, you can see there's categories on them. So Mm -hmm. we've got some protein, some flavors, some secret ingredients. Uh, I thought maybe you could draw some from the different piles and tell us how you might take all of those ingredients, whether they're from your pantry or things you've picked up at the market, and put together an antipasti board for us using those things. I love it. (laughs) So the sky's the limit. Draw whatever you'd like, and we'll see what you end up with. All right. I'm definitely going vegetable first, protein next, and I'm going to get a secret ingredient, which is kind of a risky move. Yeah. Okay. So I picked spinach, pork, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and rice cakes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I'm talking, this is, this actually says on the card, rice cakes, bland, flat, round, crunchy. So like the store-bought rice cake. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so pork is a, again, you know, as we said, sort of an unexpected antipasti ingredient. Right. But I think that the beauty in pork is that if cooked properly, you know, to the point where it's juicy and it can sort of sit out and not dry immediately, it's a genius antipasti because it sort of is a chameleon and it goes with a ton of different flavorings. And, you know, that's why so many cuisines in the world, I feel like, um, you know, have pork as a focal meat. Sure. Um, it goes with everything. It's sort of, you know, absorbs flavors, but also lends its own flavors to other ingredients. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I, I think when I think pork and Italy, I think Tuscany. Yeah. Um, and I think of this sort of, you know, delicious, iconic roast pork loin that they do. Um, you know, we rub it in anchovy and rosemary and maybe, you know, some thyme or black pepper, um, some fresh garlic that you can like grate on a microplane and sort of smear all over it. Uh-huh. And then I do like a slow roast. So I, it's something like an hour and a half, you know, like, 
almost like too much time. Okay. For whatever reason, the slowness just allows the juices to kind of stay put and not drip out as much. Yeah. And when you cut into it, it's so tender. So that to me is like an easy go-to, like that sliced pork platter that can just sit out and, you know, fills you up. It, like it helps you absorb some of that wine you're drinking. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. The spinach is like such a great pull because yeah. you can do anything with spinach. So a line that I say all the time about Piatti is like in the time it takes to wilt a vegetable in a pan, you can have an antipasti or an antipasto. Um, uh-huh. And I think spinach is the perfect example of that. In fact, that's what comes to mind when I say that line. So I do it. Um, I do it in bean dishes. I do a lentil dish sort of, you know, really simple boiled in salt water, uh, black lentils. And then I throw them in a pan with a little bit of vinegar and some red onion and some spinach and just wilt that and toss it all together. And then I serve like a huge ball of burrata on top of that. Uh-huh. And it just encourages people to eat it with like warm bread. So gives the burrata a little bit of texture. It right. gives the lentil something fun and colorful. And then you get a little dose of green and uh, vegetable in your antipasti. That one's in the book, right? Yeah, that is okay. in the book. Yeah. yeah. Rice cakes. God. Okay. If I had to serve rice cakes as an antipasti, (laughs) I guess I could see using them as like a dip mechanism. Uh Um, There is a, you know, number of delicious dips in the book, but um, everything from, you know, like a white bean dip, I could do like a white bean dip with some garlic and bacon. Um, I could do an awesome pesto. Like there's a pistachio pesto in the book. That's my favorite, but hazelnut pesto is so good. Um, you know, almond pesto, any of that. And just put like a little dose of maybe like some lemon zest in it to give a little extra punch. Cause if you're eating it on a rice cake, you're going to need all the help you can (laughs) get and some really salty pecorino romano and Uh maybe even like a little chili flake in that pesto. Like, Uh I don't know if I had to gun to my head, serve rice cakes. Like that's what I got. That's awesome. Should we do one more quick round? Okay, let's do it. Okay. Ooh, so this time I picked, oh gosh, sweet <laughs> potatoes, Okay. <laughs> vanilla bean paste, uh-huh. and red pepper flakes. Now, do okay. I have to use these all in the same dish, no. do you think? No. Okay. I mean, you have the luxury in this. We play this game a lot with guests, but you have the luxury of you're making an antipasti platter, so you can sort of put that's things true. where they make sense. <laughs> Love it. Okay, I'm going to start with the vanilla bean paste because that's okay. the hardest one. And I think what jumps to mind is again, kind of roasting fruit. So there are a couple different sort of fruit salads in the book. Um, some of them are served with a combination of fruits and vegetables, but I think uh-huh. if you can sort of contrast like a really caramelized, juicy roasted fruit with something fresh and crunchy, I think that would be super fun. So sure. I would do like vanilla bean paste. <laughs> I'm going to put the vanilla bean paste and the red pepper flakes together and do kind of like a vanilla chili oil kind of a thing. Like, and, and rub that on some like peaches or nectarines slices and throw that in the oven and then maybe serve that with like some mozzarella and, you know, um, like what would I want in there for crunch? Maybe some roast hazelnuts or something. Um, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Like I feel like, it would be cooling and kind of sweet, but spicy. And right. you wouldn't really notice the vanilla that much because there's so much natural flavor in the fruit that it would just kind of complement instead of standing out from. Right. Um, the sweet potatoes. It's so, I just don't like sweet potatoes that much. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not really that much of a sweet person. So I feel like they're, right. they're like slightly too sweet for me. 
But okay, let's take a sweet potato and cut it into rounds, okay. thin rounds, and then um, like sort of really quickly saute those in some olive oil until they're like just, I'll say al dente. Okay. Uh-huh. And then... I want to do kind of like a room temperature salad with them. So maybe like the first herb that comes to mind is dill, like maybe some fresh dill, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of like stack them like a deck of cards, you know, like sort of sort of overlap them on each other. Right. Um, and then put like a little bit of maybe creme fraiche. And um, I mean, you could even do like toasted pecans, um, a little bit of dill on there and maybe like a good vinaigrette. So yeah. something with like a lot of lemon and maybe even like a little hint of white vinegar to kind of like really brighten it up and, and douse that sure. on top. Yeah, okay. that sounds great. <laughs> would you eat it? <laughs> I would definitely eat it. That sounds amazing. Awesome. <laughs> sounds like a, a super antipasti platter. Yeah. Well, this was so fun. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you. It was an honor. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Piatti, the clams with broccoli rabe and crispy prosciutto in a tomato wine sauce, and also the blackened summer squash with buttermilk cream sauce, rosemary, and chives. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can leave a rating or join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Salt and Spine.